Having said all of that, now let me say, um, Happy Māori New Year, Matariki New Year. It is a long holiday. I hope you enjoyed your long weekend. Had your day off on Friday. Um, I get a day off on Friday as well, but nobody pays for me, me for that anymore. Um, it's all good, yeah. About six years ago, Kim and I went off to Malaysia. And a bit of a rush. We only had two days to get there when her brother passed away. And um, because they don't hold bodies over there very long and we just had to go, if we were going to go, they told us you need to be here in two days, otherwise it's not much point. And so we hopped on a plane and we, very short notice, we went and we travelled all night, flew all night and in the morning, early in the morning, we got picked up by um, some of the family and they took us to the home um, which I was very familiar with, you know, it's a place that I've been many times before and it's Kim's, it was one of Kim's closest brothers. And we got there just as things were starting to get going. We had no time to talk to anybody beforehand. We were just right into it and doing it. On the way over, we, we talked about how we would actually handle that situation because it was a Buddhist funeral and that's quite different to anything else that I've ever seen before. And with the, um, the idol worship and things like that, we wanted to be involved with the family as much as we could and participate where we could. But at the same time, we needed to honour our God and we needed to stay clear of the things which we, which we would be able to see that were obviously wrong, things that we could not do. And I think that we made a reasonable job of navigating that they do things like they have the coffin sort of up here in the porch and everybody's out there in the front and then they run away in, go have a look at the body and then run away and it's round and round and round in circles just like that. And I'd seen it before and it's quite intriguing really. Um, but there were incense sticks and we declined to use those incense sticks and at the end of it we thought that we kind of had done things as would be appropriate. Then we hopped in the cars afterwards and we chased the hearse through five lanes of motorway traffic and that was all very exciting. You could see the hearse way up the top of the hill there, about two or three lanes over and we were going for our lives to keep up. And we got there and we did what we had to do and went back. And then as we were sitting there, we, then it was mealtime and we were sitting there and we were eating. And then I, I was sitting there and I was actually, we were actually finished eating and I was eating an orange, I think. I had this orange in my hand. And I felt this hand come on my shoulder. And it was a brother-in-law, Kim's brother, who was a Christian. And this is what he said to me. He says, my brother, I'm sorry. I've let you down. He said, you should not be eating this food. All of this food here has been offered to idols and you should not be touching it. And I kind of said in a reaction, in fact, he's telling me now because I've already eaten. But <laughs> nevertheless, it took me back a wee bit. And if you look up at the, at the uh, slide behind me, um, it's a, uh, there's a verse that I was very familiar with. Eat what is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose somebody tells you this meat has been offered to an idol. Don't eat it. Out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you, it might, be a matter of con might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it was to the other person. And I, could have been, I sort of felt like I might have been in that situation where I felt like I was okay with what had happened there. But he was the one who lived in Malaysia. And he was the one who a lot of his family was Buddhist. And he was the one who knew. And when he told me that, I knew that lunch was over. We're going to be talking today about Matariki. It's a special weekend. It's the, Ma it's the Maori New Year holiday. It's the second year that we've had a holiday for it, but it's not new to the Maori world at all. In fact, I can remember years ago, something like, it could have been 15 years ago when I was in a work conference, uh, our leader, our, um, our team leader, she was, she's a Maori lady and very much um, involved in these sort of things. And I can remember her giving us a lesson on what Matariki was way back then, something like 15 years ago. Everybody else in the world pretty much has their own New Year. 
They do, don't they? I've been to Malaysia during Chinese New Year. And straight after Chinese New Year, there was the Indian New Year. Uh, and as we were coming home from Chinese New Year, um, we could see the Indians preparing for, for, uh, for, that, for their New Year as well. And, and we've got friends uh, here from, from Nepal, and they have theirs. And basically, every, uh, all of the cultures have their own New Year. And there's absolutely no reason at all. I, I love the concept that the Māori people do have their own New Year. And, and when we think about it, who are we really to say that the Roman calendar is the right calendar? It's just the one that we use. And so uh, they do, they have, and now we have got this, um, this holiday um, for the Māori people here. But, in, but with that, there has also been a huge push in recent years on Māori culture. And with working in corporate organisations, one thing or another, there, it's something that, uh, that we have kind of um, found ourselves involved with, kind of without any, without any prior notice that it was coming. And we've had to adjust to certain things. And I think our greatest fears when it comes to dealing with these sorts of new things is the fact that we don't understand it. The other thing is, and we don't understand it for two reasons. One is that we don't quite know what is happening, but also it is in a language that we don't understand. Now that in itself is a huge mistake, isn't it? The fact that they that Tireo was never allowed in our schools during all of our growing up years means that we just don't know it. And when you get to 70 and try and learn it, it's not as easy as what you might think. And so I, I just want to say at the start of this that what we talk about today, there is nothing that's in this today that is intended to be political at all, nor is it intended to be racist at all, that is either forwards or backwards. All we want to do today is to have a conversation about how things work and just try and analyse a little. Where do we, as Christians, fit in with all of that? Now, uh, the last couple of years, I, I have tried to do a little bit of study on it. I've just finished a TAO course, uh, but I missed the major component of it. I was supposed to go to, um, supposed to, go to uh, a Marae weekend um, back in April, but there was things happening in our family and I never got there. So I struggled to complete it. I don't think that I have learnt it very well at all. There's somebody in our audience today, though, who over the years has learnt it and, and immersed herself in it a lot. She does know a lot about it, and her name is Lou Ferguson. And Lou and I are going to have a little bit of a discussion up here and she will help us to work our way through this. So Lou, if you want to come up to the front here, please, and grab yourself a stool. And and you can have, you want to sit that side? You can sit that side. Um, no, you can. You have I a choice. Face my family. You want to face your family. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good. And I just need to be somewhere that's close enough so that I can um, actually see the screen of a computer and flick it forward at the at the right times. So, okay. I can see that. I think that should work. Yep. So first of all, you are Lou. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where? Um, how long have you been here, up here in Alexandra? Where did you come from? And um, what excites you about living up in this part of the world? Yeah. So, Morena uh, Itifano. My name is Laurie, but everyone calls me Lou, which I prefer, so please keep doing that. Um, <laughs> I have two children. Anthony's 19, he's over there. Megan's 16, she's not here today. Um, I work as a home-based educator out in Clyde, so I look after little, little people while their parents are at work. Yeah. So I moved here in November last year from Gore, and I've always been drawn to the Alexandra area. Yeah. It's somewhere 
I've always enjoyed spending time and last year God said, hey, I think it's a good time for you to move and so I did. So yeah, yeah I've been here ever since and yeah. absolutely loving it. Well, welcome here. Thank you. Yeah, I know that you have met and, and uh, know a lot of people here already. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't met new, uh, Lou up until now, then this is Lou, yeah. So what was your background to um, your interest in te ao Māori? So I grew up with a little bit of the Māori culture, not a lot. Like As you said, I think a lot of it was taken out of schools and it is making its way back in now. But I learnt a lot during my time at Teachers College. We learnt a lot of the language and the tikanga and I very much fell in love with the culture and as I started my teaching career I wanted to learn more and more and so I learned to flax weave and make kawakawa balm and I had a go at kapahaka but I'm not very coordinated so that didn't go well but <coughs> when I got to learning about the history of the Māori people and the what we used to call myths and legends now we call them Māori stories and that was when I was quite conflicted. There's a lot of ref reference to um, Na Atua Māori or the Māori God. Some of you might have been familiar with that. And as a Christian, I really sort of struggled with that concept. And so I began a, a learning journey where I had a lot of korero with um, some kaumātua in the southern area, some Māori elders, and both Christian and non-Christian, so that I could get to a place where I felt like I was honouring my God, but also respecting a culture that I was still learning about and teaching other people about. I needed to really make sure I was doing both justice. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of conversations and a lot of prayer to get to that point. So what is Matariki exactly? So Matariki, let me just refer to my notes. You've jumped ahead a question. Confused me. So oh, did I? That's um, <laughs> all right. So so the stars themselves have been um, really meaningful to the Māori culture since long, long before Māori even arrived here in New Zealand. So the Māori first came to New Zealand back in about the 13th century, depending on what history book you pick up. But we, well, there would be, there was you know, no Google Maps back then, so the stars was how they travelled, it was how they were able to guide them their way across the seas, it was how they were able to guide their way through like the really dense bush of New Zealand and it was also, we didn't have calendars back then, so it was how they knew what seasons were coming, what seasons we were in, what seasons were next and that's how Matariki came, so when Matariki rises it's when we know it's time to harvest our winter crops and prepare our land for the seasons to come and that's really where Matariki initiated, uh, was initiated, so it would become a celebration where the Māori people would gather in their community, they would harvest their winter crops, prepare the soil for the year ahead, they would give thanks for the harvest that's been planned for the year ahead, and they would also farewell their loved ones who had passed on in the previous year, so in a really short, concise nutshell. So. so. Yeah, I did jump ahead one you question, did. didn't I? Yeah, yeah. So we better go back and just ask you that question. Where is Matariki um, mentioned in the Bible? So did you put that on a... Uh, it is now. Um, it's so, right there. Yeah. So in Māori language, we refer to the star cluster as Matariki. In Greek language, now my today is a lot better than my Greek, but it's pronounced Pleiades. And that's what you'll see in our English Bible. In the Māori Bible here, you'll see it referred to as Matariki, just the first word on that second line there, in Amos. And so I'll read the English. So it says, He who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who call for the waters of the sea and pours them over, uh, out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. It's also twice in Job is mentioned. So in Job 9.9, is the maker, the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. So every time Matariki is mentioned in the Bible, it's to point out God's almighty power as their creator, basically. So. Okay, yeah. So what is the background to remembering those who have passed away during the year? and releasing their souls to the stars. Can you explain so that's that? That's an interesting us? conversation we had. So historically, the Māori used to release the souls of their deceased 
to the heavens during a Matariki celebration. Now that was, there's a logistics behind that and it's not something they practice anymore. But so to a lot of cultures, and Māori is no different, it's important to bring, to bring your dead home and bury them. And back, way back when, um, yeah, before Pākehā arrived, the, our land was very, very dense and so the tribes would travel for months or you know, weeks or months on end to either gather food or hunting or for battle or for hui. And if you lost a member of your tribe during that time, you couldn't bring their body home. You would have to bury them where they passed and they'd plant, just a little side note, they'd plant a wee cabbage tree as a form of like a headstone. So there's the significance of cabbage trees. And they would, they believed that they would then carry that soul with them as they returned home. And at the next rising of Matariki, they'd release that soul to the heavens. So that's a really historic, Thing. It's not something um, Māori in general continue to practice today. It's they now farewell their loves at a tangi, just like we would at a funeral. It's not not something that's practiced. So, if you're ever at a Matariki celebration and you see, you might see people calling out the names of their loved ones as they look up at the stars. That's simply a way of grieving and remembering. It's no longer has that. Okay. Yeah. But on, on these last few days, we have seen, as they have portrayed all of this stuff on TV and told us what is coming up, um, they have said um, some things like, uh, they explained how that you dig a hole in the ground and you make a hangi, you know how to make a hangi, and then, um, then they dig the hangi out of the ground and then the flavour of the hangi um, goes to the atua of the stars and it talked about um, the stars being the guardians of our, of our earth. So where, how do we as Christians deal with that? So that's, so I've been attending Matariki celebrations for about 20 years now, and that's not something I've ever yeah. witnessed myself, but I, I believe that's something that perhaps used to happen, um, particularly up north. Whereas as a Christian, for me and for a lot of um, kamatua I know, when we karakia motikai or we, we say grace, it's we're thanking God for the food that he has provided. And in doing so, that, that's thanking our God, God, the week that we worship. And matariki, the karakia motikai around matariki is about more than just thanking him for the food that's in that particular hangi pit. It's about thanking him for the food that he's provided for the whole season that's just mm. just passed. Okay, so. yeah. All right, so with that, I think we have pretty much done it. Is there anything else that you think that we should actually add in there? Um, the only thing I really want to say is don't be afraid to ask questions about mm. any culture you don't know. Um, most people will be more than happy to mm. answer those questions. And as I said, I've been attending Matariki celebrations for a long time and more often than not, I end up having a conversation with somebody about Jesus, and that's because mm. I'm, I'm asking them, I'm asking them, what's this about, what's that about, why do you do this? And, and that leads to these, these really yeah. important conversations about, yeah. about Jesus. Okay. Well, thank you, Lou. Oh. Yep. And, um, yeah, I'll let you go. And, uh, do you want me to cut a Oh, you're the character. Oh, we were going to do a character. Yeah. We weren't, <laughs> thank you. I told you this might not go all that good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so um, there we go, and unfortunately um, I had to keep the font size reasonably small just to squeeze it in there, but can you read that all right? Yeah. If not, if you can read it at all, you're better than me, that, that one. Yeah. So just for anyone that's unsure, the very start where it says etiatua, that means I am praying to the one God, so yeah. just to clarify that. So we're just going to cut a here, so if you just want to bow your heads, so etiatua, kieto, kietato, katoa. Tiatafai o Totato Areki e Ihu Karaite, Mete Aroha o Tiatua, Mete Fifinga, Tahitanga, Mete Waidoa Tapu, Homaiki Mato, Tamaramatanga, Tarangi Marie, Tokaha, Mita Aroha, Tinakwe, Monapanga, O Tinera, Aki, Aki Aki, Amine. Just in English that says Dear God, let the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ come to rest upon us all with the love of God that we have encircled by the Holy Spirit. Give us your enlightenment, your heavenly peace, your strength and your love. Thank you for the blessings of this day, forever and ever. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So just as you read that to us there, um, just one thing to highlight. You, went, um, you mentioned the fact that um, you were addressing Te Atua. 
which is different so to te atua. So in Tereo, te is da and the singular when there is just one. He is the when there is more than one, and na is plural. Yeah. So when you address e te atua, you are talking about the one, the only one. Yeah. So. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, that's absolutely great. Yeah. Okay. So as I said earlier, um, there, there has been a huge push in modern days to introduce karakia, papiha and palfrey and many of us who work or have worked in those environments have been asked to recite, to learn and to do many of these things. And um, the karakia that Lou just uh, recited to us just now was, was clearly addressed to Tiatwa, which is God. And another name that the Māori people use for the God is Io, the I-O. Okay, that means the God. There's been a lot of discussion about whether karakia is a prayer, a blessing, or a chant. And as Lou said, um, the ones that she read and the ones that we read are definitely a prayer to our God. But one of, even our tutor said to us in class one day that a, a karakia is not a prayer. It is just a blessing or a chant. Now, some of you might question that. And I think the problem, that the thing that makes many of us quite scared is the fact that when we are in a meeting and it is opened by a karakia or closed by a karakia, um, because it's all in te reo and we don't know it, uh, we really don't know what is being said at all. And I think that's important for us to, as Christians, if we are asked to do some of these things, we do need to know just exactly what we are saying and who we are praying to or reciting to. I want to read a little thing in a book called Tiango, Tikanga rather. Um, this was a book that I was given as part of um, my um, as part of my work actually, as part of the studies that we did in our work. And if I read it, I'll keep out of trouble by from misquoting or anything like that. And it says I was re recently involved with an Eevee from the outside of Taranaki who were having conflict within themselves about which path to follow and to develop. In essence, the tuhoi, um, that is youth or the young people, were taking the kamatua to task over the fact that the kamatua are the elders in the, in the iwi, uh, to task over um, the fact that the iwi as a whole was Christian-based. All of their Christian practice, practice, practices utilised Christian faith-based prayers in Tereo, whereas the young people wanted to explore and ostensibly get back to the pre-colonisation belief of Atua Māori. Eventually, a compromise was, was reached where the Kamatua essentially accepted that young people were going to explore the path to Atua, and in return, the youth of the iwi accepted that their Kamatua were brought up with their own belief systems and weren't going to change at this stage of their lives. That tells me, that reading tells me two things. It tells me, firstly, that the Māori people did convert to Christianity. Before Christianity, um, they, they would um, worship the Atuas. And there's about 70 different Atuas, as we were taught. Uh, um, but they are what we see of God in nature except that they have filled in the gaps because they didn't really know uh, about our real God. In Romans 1, and 20, in Romans 1 verse 20, we read that for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky through everything that God had made. They can clearly see the invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. And some of the theologians have said that in every culture of the world, before Christianity, there was ample evidence everywhere 
that there is a God who exists, a greater power. Now, they might not have known who that was. And the, um, and the New, Zealand, uh, New Zealand Māori people did not know who that was. Yet, just um, a few days ago, I went out and I was pruning my, my, uh, my fruit trees. And um, on that particular fruit tree, um, a few months ago, I was harvesting a, a, a really good crop, actually, of, uh, of peaches. And there were leaves on the tree and there was fruit on the tree. And then, but when I went out just a couple of days ago, that, fr that tree looked pretty dead. Okay, and those of you who work with fruit trees or whatever, um, you're working with this stuff all the time. Okay, to me that tree looks totally dead. And then I got into it with the saw and with the pruning shears. And by the time I was finished cutting off its arms and legs and everything, it looked probably even more dead. But in a few months, probably even less than a few months, there'll be buds that appear on that tree and it will come back to life again. And when we look at that, we even, uh, all of us as Christians as well, we look at that and we say, hey, the power of nature, isn't it? It's the power of nature. So way back in history, um, our Maori people, they also saw the same. They saw the, the power behind nature. They could see the power in the, uh, that there was a greatness in the skies. They could see in nature, in the trees, uh, that there was something more there than just a physical tree. And that's how they came to have these Atawas. But then Christianity came. And as we read in that book, um, the Maori people did convert to Christianity. There was about 20 years between the time when uh, Samuel Marsden first came to New Zealand and tried to, and, and, he, and he had a great impact on the people, uh, but it took something like 20 years before their first real conversion and before their first baptism. But then after that, they picked up the gospel themselves and it was them as much as, as, as the missionaries who carried it forward um, throughout the country. There was a story that I, that I read that I tried to find, and I can't just find it in the book, but the story about one of the missionaries who, fairly well on in the, in the time period, um, went across to the Nelson region with a view to actually starting a Christian work over there. And when he got there, he found that there was a church already there, and that the Maori people themselves had carried that forward, and they had, um, the, the, they, they had Christianized the area even before the missionary actually went there. And this is quite an amazing thing, really. The thing that concerns us mostly is that in, and it's not just in New Zealand or in Maritim, but in all of those indigenous cultures around the world, there is a huge push today to go back to those early beliefs. It's happening in Australia. It's happening in Tahiti. It's happening in Hawaii, amongst the American Indians, and in Canada as well. I wonder if somehow we Pākehā people and the history that we have been involved in in this land here has been partly responsible for that. Because I was in a course um, with, with my work, and um, there was, it was good, actually, they, they taught us many things about some, what these things actually mean. But there was one presenter there at that course, and she was obviously very anti-Christian. And she completely rubbished um, Samuel Marsden and had a picture of Samuel Marsden with his cat of nine tails and said there is such, and a verse of scripture which, which um, in Proverbs 13, which said about um, beating your children with pieces of wood now, if you look up the meanings of all the words, you can put words in and make it read like that if you want to. But that's not the intent of that verse in, in um, Proverbs 13. Yeah. And that she seemed to totally discredit all of those Christian missionaries. And when we were sitting around our tables, and we were asked to sit around the table just like we do here and discuss what we had heard. I pushed back on that. And I said to, them, to the people at my table, I said, if it wasn't for those early missionaries, there would have been no treaty. 
There would have been uh, no declaration of independence prior to the treaty, which actually led to the treaty being needed. There would have been none of, none of that. And even the people at my table, and not a single one of them, as far as I could tell, had any Māori in them at all, um, totally disagreed with my position. And this is where we are today, and I can't help thinking that with all of the things that the, that the colonisers did in the Māori wars, land wars and all that kind of stuff, whether they've heaped it all together and somehow blame all of us, all of this, on taking away their culture, and they want it back. And okay, we can understand, we have a freedom of religion in this country, yeah, but of course for us as Christians, we are concerned about the fact that people uh, are turning away from Christianity and going back. You know, if you don't know something, as we talked about there in, in Romans, and uh, how that in the early days, if, uh, if you have got a picture of, you can see nature and you can see the power of God in nature, but don't know who that um, God uh, of nature is, um, and then you do know because the, the missionaries came and they taught it and they were converted. You can choose to go back, but you can never unlearn the things that you once learned. And you cannot ever get back into a position of total innocence where you just don't know who that God is because you, you can reject it, but you cannot unknow it. And I think that's where probably uh, a lot of... Um, uh, yeah, a lot of, where a lot of us would stand on it. We are concerned because it is a choice rather than a position. The Western world is exactly the same, though. Let's be honest here. You know, we've got, we've got to be fair as we talk about these things. And uh, The Western world has also um, rejected Christianity. And you remember the Charles Darwinian theory about the origins of the species. Now, there's something about that that we might not be so well aware of, and that is in that, um, in that theory of his, there was, um, there was this promoting of the strongest, um, strongest cultures and said that the, some of the cultures who were weaker would eventually die out. Now, that was totally offensive to many of the Aboriginal uh, cultures around the world, and rightly so. Who says that one culture is stronger than another? And who looks at, it, at my culture, for example, and says, why should it be more than what theirs was? And that caused huge uh, offence to, in New Zealand, to the Maori people in New Zealand, as well as in Tahiti and other places around the world. Charles Darwin did actually come to New Zealand. The Apostle Paul talked uh, an acts about it as he was walking along. He saw many shrines and one of the altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. And so it was, uh, uh, so what happened, the early missionaries um, was just like that, how that in New Zealand, they, they brought the gospel telling the Maori people who God, who Te Atua or Ao actually is. And so from that, um, the people were converted and they did change here in New Zealand. I want to bring a scripture into this now. This is my key text for today. There was this, the story of the, of the lawyer. When I say a lawyer, he was an expert in the Jewish law. Um, and, he, and, and he questioned Jesus about the, the most important commandments. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his, with his reply, they came together to question him again. And one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbour as yourself. The entire law and all the commandments of the prophet, all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So just looking at that first one first. 
there's one thing. When you look at that first commandment, it is totally exclusive. And in this respect, both of those commandments are exact polar opposites. Because in this first one here, it says that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and it is the greatest commandment. When you go back to Exodus and Deuteronomy, um, where this was, was, um, was first given to the Israelites, they were told, no other gods before me, no idols, nothing else. And the first four commandments all tied in with this one about loving the Lord your God, you worshipping the Lord your God. It is totally exclusive. And while we want to fit in with much of our society, and that is a lot, and that is commandment two. And so he said, the second is equally important. You need to love your neighbour as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The man wanting to justify his action asked Jesus, who's my neighbour? Now you notice that he didn't ask any questions at all about question one, about commandment one. Because in his world and in his mind, Jewish Pharisees, Sadducees, Levites, they thought that they had, number one, pretty much off pat. They thought that they were doing pretty well with that. But when Jesus gives some commandment two as well, uh, this challenges him in his mind and he says, who is my neighbour? And that's when Jesus tells the story of the, um, the good Samaritan as we have come to know it. Now just as we go into this part of it, I just want to remind you that a parable is actually a teaching tool. A parable, it may be true, it may not be true necessarily, but the, the facts of it are true. It's like what any of you who are involved in teaching or in teaching apprentices or teaching kids at school, we use scenarios in teaching and uh, I, if I've got a room full of apprentices and I may tell them a story about a car going down a hill and he, the, the driver puts his foot on the brake and it gradually sinks all the way to the floor until it's gone and there's no more brakes and the car crashes at the bottom of the hill. And we ask them, to diagnose, to tell us what it all meant, what went wrong, and that's what they do. Now, Jesus uses parables, and Mark, he talks about from then on, he never taught them anything else face to face, but taught them only in parables. He told them stories that had a meaning. And, uh, and that's important because of, of the people that he involves in this story of the, uh, of the, the Samaritan. And as he talks about what happened to this man, he, there's a man who's lying on the side of the road, he's injured, he's bleeding, he's dying. And Jesus tells a story and he says, there on, he says that a priest was going down the road and he saw him and he went by on the other side. Likewise a Levite also. Now these are the people that he worked with. These are the people that are part of his social group, of his work group. He is right in there with these Pharisees and the Sadducees. He is an, an expert in understanding Old Testament law and prophets. And so Jesus is saying to him, two people come past this man lying on the side of the road. Your mates, the people that you work with, and both of them went past him and not a one of them does anything to help the man at all. Then he goes on and he says, but there's a Samaritan that comes along. And he sees him, and he feels compassion, and he goes over and he does first aid, as we would call it, he does everything that he can to help him. And then he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to an inn. If in our modern day we would say that he, took, he would have taken him to the hospital. Okay? He did everything he possibly could, and when he got there, he paid the, the innkeeper to look after him and do everything that he could to help him to revive again. Now remembering that this man's just been robbed so he's got no money of his own. And so the Samaritan does everything that he can to help him. And on the next... And then Jesus asks him, 
Who do you think is the neighbour to the one who fell among robbers? And the lawyer cannot even bring himself to say who he was. He simply says, I suppose he's the one who showed compassion. He never mentioned Samaritan at all. And you wonder why that could be. And there's a reason for that. The Samaritans were people who, uh, who lived to... Within their land, basically, they were, they were in part of their land to the north. Um, they were their blood brothers, or half-brothers at least. They were some of the other tribes who had been taken by the, by the Assyrians when they captured them and taken away because they had lived in a different part of the land. And when they came back, on those that were left, they had intermarried and everything else with all of the people, the Syrians and everybody else who was living in the land, and they were no longer pure, uh, pure Jews. And as part of that, uh, and because of that, of the rejection of the Jews in Judah, they, they didn't like going down to Jerusalem to, uh, to the temple for temple worship because they would only be ridiculed down there. So they created their own religion as well with a new temple, two temples up in their own area. And, um, and so they have become a totally what the Jews considered to be a defiled nation. And they hated them for all that they were worth. And several times that the letters come up in the, in the Gospels. Then Luke 17 um, Jesus talks about healing ten, well the narrative tells us about Jesus healing ten lepers. One comes back to say thanks. One. And he's a Samaritan. Then there's John 4 where, where Jesus goes through Samaria and there's a Samaritan woman there at the well and she needs his help and Jesus is there really to, to meet her needs. And as soon as he speaks to her, she says to him, what are you doing? I'm a Samaritan. You and us, we don't have any dealings with each other. And Jesus pushes through that and meets her right where she is. And then last week, because we were in Wellington last week, but I listened to the podcast at the end of the day and uh, we heard what Craig said last week and he talked about this Canaanite woman in, uh, in the area of Phoenicia. And she, ba she basically had to beg to... Well, she didn't have to. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing as he worked his way through all of this, but she begged and begged for Jesus to, to help her because she was not a Jew and she had no natural rights uh, as the Jews had. And then Jesus, because of her persistent faith, he, he helped her. So these are the people around in the Jewish culture. They did not reach out to others around them. They did not. They hated the people either in Samaria or people living in and around their land. I want to tell you two stories, just to, and then I'm done. I want two stories about, about who our Samaritans might be today. And, as, and we've been talking about, um, about a bicultural thing this morning, simply between the Maori people and the Pākehā women, but people, but... Of course, if you look around the room, you'll see that there is a whole lot of people in our, even in our church and in our town, there is a whole lot of people from all over the world and we're all living here together. And it's important that, um, that we include, we are inclusive um, about loving our neighbour with all of you people. Yeah. The first story I want to tell you actually started right here in this room. Quite a few years ago, it was before I met Kim, I was living here and I was on my own and there was a man who came and he joined in with us. He came to Alexandra. He was from Zimbabwe. And he was here for quite a few months and uh, he was working in the telecommunications um, business and he was fixing our tele telephone exchanges and all that kind of stuff and modernising all of them. But... He was here and his wife and his three little, tiny little daughters were all still back in Zimbabwe. And it was very hard for him because it took something like 18 months to get the whole thing through uh, immigration and to 
get his family over here. Now, that's a long time, and some of you people here today can relate to that. You know, it's very, very difficult to deal with some of these uh, legal things to do with immigration. Anyway, he was here for something like about four months, and eventually he finished his work and he went over to Queenstown. But I kept contact with him. And I used to see him over there sometimes in Queenstown. And uh, uh, eventually one day, about 18 months later, I picked up the paper on a Saturday morning and here's his photo and all of his family on the front page and he's finally got his family here and they're all together and it was so good. And I immediately picked up the phone and I rang him up and I said, Free, I can see that you've, you've got your family here. That's just so great. And I said, as soon as I get a chance, I'll come and I'll meet your wife and your family. It was about five weeks until I managed to get over there um, or in a way that I could actually go and visit them with night classes and one thing and another. But then I did, and we had a really great evening together as I met his wife and as I met his family. Uh, and the, little, the littlest girl, she didn't even know her dad because she was just so tiny when he left to come over here. And he was over here for 18 months, and in that time there was so much growing time. Yeah. But anyway, at the end of the night, we, I was just leaving to go home again, and uh, Virginia said to me, um, thank you so much for coming to our place to meet us tonight. You're our first visitor. And I thought, first visitor? They had joined up with a church over there. Um, and, but five weeks and nobody from anywhere has been to their house. And I just wish that they could have still been here in Alexandria because I know that that would not have happened here. Yeah. And I sincerely hope so. But it's a lesson, isn't it, about how we include different people into our lives, people from different cultures. Yeah. I still keep up with them, actually. And it was several years later, uh, Virginia had done her nursing training by this time and then eventually they were moving away to Wellington. And as, again, by this time, Kim's on board, you know, she's with me, she knows them now too. And uh, as they were leaving to move to Wellington, we spent a night, an evening with them again. And I was just keen to know how things had happened, had gone in between times, and I asked. And she says, oh, yes, she says, we've got so many good friends now. She says, we, you know, it's, it's really great, and we're really sad to be leaving all of these people behind as we move up north. But do you know what, she said? You're the only white person who has ever been to our house. Yeah. I want to tell you the second story, which is a story from history, really. 1860, approximately. Obviously, I'm not involved in that one. <laughs> 1960, I could have been. 1860, no, that's pushing it a wee bit. It's also in South Africa, and I know there's a lot of people here that are from South Africa. Um, this happened in a, um, in a rural area, um, and the name I've forgotten right now, although I've read this story in two different places. I, have, I first saw it in a Christian magazine, but I've also Googled it, and it's actually there on the internet. You can Google it, and you can find out and read the story. You know, it came at a time when the churches in South Africa were praying, and for two years they were praying that there would be some kind of revival in South Africa, uh, Christianity was stagnating and going absolutely nowhere. There was a prayer meeting in this little church, in this regional community. And this prayer meeting was being managed by the youth pastor, as it turned out. There was also a lead pastor somewhere else, but he wasn't there. The youth pastor was leading this this prayer service, and the format normally was that somebody would ask to call out and ask to sing a hymn and they would sing the hymn and then that person would pray and that's kind of the way that things worked. This young girl puts up her hand and says, I want to pray. And the youth pastor said that my instinct said, no, this cannot happen. Because he knows the culture, he knows the way things work in that place. And she had three things against her. And he thought, I can't 
let this happen. And he was totally uncomfortable with it himself. There were three things that were against her. One was the fact that she was a woman. Now some of us understand how that can be, you know, women not allowed to speak openly in churches, but she wanted to pray. And um, so that was the first thing that she had against her. In fact, she was only about 15 years of age. The second thing was that she was a black woman. And with the racism of South Africa at that time, there was no way that the black people were allowed to take public roles. And the third thing that she had against her was the fact that she was a farm worker. And the farm workers, it wasn't slavery in South Africa, but the farm workers were the lowest of the low. And yes, they were encouraged to attend all of these services, and church and all that kind of stuff, but they never said anything, they never did anything. They were not in lead roles, they were just farm workers. But the youth pastor telling the story himself said, I wanted to say no, but I didn't. He said, I said yes. And what happened next took everybody by surprise. Because as she prayed, her prayer was so intense, so meaningful, that by the time that she had finished, there were other people in the room falling to their knees and praying for forgiveness about their attitudes towards each other and, many, and their own sins. And the prayers were going on around and round the room. And the lead pastor actually was told that something was happening in there and he went in there to try and break it up. But there was no way that it was breaking up. And that was the start of the great South African revival. A prayer from one young 15-year-old black farm girl. After this, I looked. Claudine read us this verse, this verse just a few weeks ago, didn't she? After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number in heaven, from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, from all languages. And all tribes, of course, is all iwi, in all sectors of every, of every, um, every nation, or all peoples around the world. And that would be all islands around the, the islands of the Pacific and everywhere. And they would all be there, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's what we're going to see when we get to heaven. And we need to adjust the way that we live and the way that we think and the way that we interact with people and the way that we love people. Because we're going to be there too. We're going to be there too. Yeah. And so that's me, and I'm done. <laughs>